Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada you don't take yada yada in life don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide this episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select game Gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Welcome back to the show, fellow conspiracy realist, our classic tonight and actually, we're having several this weekend in celebration of the end of the year. Uh, we thought, what better time to uh, what better time to re-examine our conversation with with one of our very good friends, a mentor of sorts, although he hates when we say that, Josh Clark. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. No, no, but it's accurate. Josh is a cool guy and a super sharp cookie. Can you be a sharp cookie? Sharp yeah, crayon. Sure. Whatever. He's smart, okay? And he is super interested in a lot of the same topics that we are, uh, not the least of which is the idea of this world, this little pale blue dot that we occupy, coming to an end, whether with a bang or with a whimper. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that that could potentially happen. And that's what Josh covers on his podcast, The End of the World. All the little ways that this whole thing that we call reality and experience could just go boop. That was it. Great job. But you don't even you don't even get that. It's just over. But it's also not a massive bummer. The show is handled with, with thoughtful commentary, some interviews with some experts in the field. And Josh is, of course, kind of, you know, trademark wit and, and lightheartedness. Like, it's it's heavy. But it, you'll get through it, and it's it, you'll you'll learn something, and you might you know get some laughs and feel some feels along the way. So check out our conversation with our uh, with our ride or die, uh, Josh C himself, and then tune into the show End of the World with Josh Clark available now in its entirety. Yeah, well, and listen to how many things have come to uh, have, or at least we're on the precipice of now. Right. Since we made this in 1221, 2018 is when this came out. So many of the things we discuss in the show feel like they've kind of happened. The pandemic happened right after this. This is 
December 21st, 2018, and we're talking about gain-of-function research in specific labs that are doing dangerous stuff. Eh, I don't know, guys. Let's see what Josh has to say about all this. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deckett. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Gentlemen, we are at the end of the year, and today we are talking about the end of the world. Yes, how humanity shall perhaps perish. Yes. and or, we, you know, do a better job in, in fix yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, sure. We're, we're going to be able to fix it. Now, we are not confronting uh, these uh, existential threats alone today. We are joined with an expert and a friend of the show, longtime friend of ours, both on and off the air. He's kind of like our big brother in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Friends and neighbors, uh, Josh Clark. Hey, guys. Hey, man. Thank hey. you for having me on. I've always thought of you as a bit of a big brother figure. That's I really feel like cool. you're always watching. You know, I, like oh, an okay, Orwellian. Yes, okay. That's yeah, a little yeah. more my style <laughs> <Yeah>. for sure <laughs> than, the, than the huggy, right. like, hey, yeah. you can do it kind of thing. Well, oh. in my mind, it's more of uh, watching you walk and then trying to find a way to fit in those footsteps, at least in some small way. Like Thanks match lot, his gait? Man. Like kind of like. Yeah, yeah, really just try and. <laughs> that <laughs> explains exactly. so much. My, my gait is more of like a, um, it's kind of like a speed walk slash jazzer size cross thing. Ooh. So it's tough to replicate, man. I've seen you try, and uh, I think it's adorable. Thanks. <laughs> so, so uh, hopefully, hopefully, Matt, you will have some time to perfect uh, that gate, and that leads us to the big question, Josh. You recently created a podcast called "The End of the World." That is true. And one of the questions that a lot of people have when we talk about the end of the world, is really a question of timeline. You know, tick, 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 tick. Mm -hmm. How much time does Matt Frederick have to practice his gait? Um, Matt, I would give you one to two centuries tops. Whoa. Which which sounds like a lot of time. Yeah. It does. You're, you're like, well, I'll be long in the grave most likely. Although, I don't know. You might live to a substantial portion of that. But if you step back and think – what about the children? What about the grandchildren? What about the future humans who will will come down the line over the next 100, 200 years? And then if you look beyond that and really take a step back and look at just how long some people expect humanity to continue on into the billions of years, all of a sudden the idea of going extinct in the next 100 to 200 years suddenly becomes really um, terrifying and scary yeah. if you can kind of step outside of yourself. Well, quickly, let's just get uh, kind of an idea of what happens if humanity just does great. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't kill ourselves off. Uh, some giant external thing doesn't wipe humanity out. That billion years mm -hmm. that you talked about for humanity is is that cutoff date when the sun essentially creates um, all death everywhere in our solar system? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a thing for sure. Um, a lot of people say if humanity didn't do anything, just kept plodding along, and rather than doing everything right, we just kind of got lucky at every possible break. Okay. Um, a billion years is about how long we would last because that's about how long the Earth will last 
in in its place in the solar system. The sun's going to grow and it will eventually um, basically swallow the earth. Just totally subsume it. Yeah. Frying everything. Yes. It's going to – it will be – Bad news for the Earth. But mm-hmm. we've got a good billion years. And we can have a lot of fun and do a lot of cool stuff in a billion years. That's the low end, right? That's if we do nothing but just hang around on Earth. But alas, people are kind of dumb. <laughs> well, I mean, you can make that case. It's true. But but there's also a lot of hope to future ingenuity. Mm-hmm. And then also I think um, as far as dumbness goes contemporarily um, – it's more complacency than, than being dumb. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like there's some weird death cult mentality among a lot of people on Earth where it's just like, if humanity goes extinct, that's just what happens. Maybe we deserve it, which drives me bananas, that, that sentiment, that idea that maybe humanity deserves to go extinct. We've screwed it up for so long. Maybe this is what we have coming. And I disagree with that tremendously. Um, but but some experts say, OK, uh, if, if we if we – continue on like being humans and the kind of humans that we are to this point, um, we're probably going to do some pretty interesting things like get off of Earth mm-hmm. in the near future actually, maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years, maybe 500 years, even if it's a 1,000 years. That's plenty of time for us to just basically be like, adios Earth, it was nice. Or if you're starting to look into like the millions of years and all the things we could possibly do, maybe we can move Earth or maybe we can prevent the sun from growing because actually what it's doing is burning the last of its fuel. There's plenty of ways we could make the sun burn more efficiently and extend its life by billions of years and then save Earth in the process. There's a lot of stuff we could be doing. So when you start to look into that, then you begin to run into the the top limit for humanity's um, lifetime, lifespan into the billions and billions and billions of years, possibly to the, the heat death of the universe, which is untold billions of years away into the future. That's the final end of the franchise, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily because one thing I came across, and it, it kind of comes in at the end of the physics episode, is we are starting to figure out how we could theoretically create lab-grown universes. So who knows? Why? Maybe we can learn to grow universes and when this one's starting to wind down – we can be like, oh, well, we're going to move over here into this fresh new universe. And then that extends it indefinitely, humanity's lifespan indefinitely. So when you take all of this into account, all of the possibility that we have laying out ahead of us, it, it, it's really unnerving to think that those of us alive today have the weight of all that on our shoulders. It's up to us to save that future for the rest of humanity to come. And that's the stakes right now. Wow. So let's put – we've got the context in terms of timeline here. Let's look at the basic the, – the bare bones definitions. The end of the world deals with the phrase that we mentioned earlier in the show, existential risk. Mm-hmm. What for, – for audience, what is an existential risk and are some more – let's see, more imminent than others? So um, great question. Um, Existential risks are something that have been around for a very long time. We've lived under like natural existential risks like the sun growing and and overwhelming earth and burning it to a crisp. That's a natural existential risk. An existential risk is uh, anything that can wipe out humanity forever. Like we're just gone. There's no more humans left or the humans that are left can never get back to whatever place in history that we fell from. That's an existential risk. And there's this guy over in Oxford, uh, the uh, Oxford University, who spends his time thinking about these things and has assembled this basically like super team 
of thinkers who are all thinking about what to do about existential risks, what existential risks we're not thinking about, and then what to do if we do manage to pass these existential risks that are coming our way um, and live into the billions of years, all the amazing things we could do. So um, the guy's name is Nick Bostrom, and the center that he founded is called the Future of Humanity Institute. And they're not the only group thinking about this, but um, they're kind of like the OG group who started thinking about these things. And Nick Bostrom is kind of widely viewed as basically the father of the field of existential risk mitigation. Um, and, and, and he really kind of took some disparate thoughts that guys like Derek Parfit and um, Carl Sagan had back in about the 80s and put them together into like a genuine refined philosophy that's basically based on we need to do something pretty soon or we've, we're, we probably aren't going to make it. Tick-tock, wow. tick-tock, tick-tock. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that's my question, though. Like, is Are existential risks inherently something that's external to our actions as humans on the planet of things that we do that could potentially, you know, cause us to not exist as a species like, you know, climate change and things like that, that like impacts that we have on the planet? Or is it all about like things that are beyond our control that are bigger than us that it's we don't both. have control it's, over? It's both for sure. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's natural existential risks like the sun growing an asteroid, like the kind that took out the dinosaurs, wiping it out, wiping us out. Um, those we can't do a whole lot about now. We can all imagine a time like maybe a few decades from now where we can direct redirect the course mm -hmm. of like an asteroid that could be colliding with Earth, right? But right now we can't do anything about the natural risks. The ones we can do something about are um, anthropogenic existential risks, which are human-made existential risks. And um, we have a few of those coming down the pike, coming our way. Um, there is uh, artificial intelligence is a big one. Another one is physics. Uh, surprisingly, high-energy physics experiments may or may not pose an existential risk. But if some of the, um, some of the theories of quantum gravity that, that seek to move, uh, marry sta the standard model with relativity – if some of those are right, then actually, yes, these physics experiments are quite dangerous that we're doing right now. Um, and then biotechnology is another big one. And there's some other ones too, like nanotech could conceivably be an existential risk to us. And all of these things, as we're starting to wake up to the concept of existential risks, as our field of vision is kind of coming into focus, um, it we're suddenly recognizing like, oh, there's one. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's one. Oh, oh, geez, there's another one right there. And they're starting to come our way and very few people are paying attention to them. That's really the alarming part of the whole thing. Isn't it also mentioned earlier that it's a situation um, rooted in apathy for a lot of people? Mm -hmm. But one of the questions people will have when they hear this is if we're talking about a global existential Risk, if we're talking about not just a risk, a threat that's bigger than an individual's action, how would people mitigate something global? Like how, how uh, let's say my name is um, Dave Everyman and I'm listening here in Manitoba for uh -huh. some reason. Yeah. And I say, man, the wild animals are dying at this incredibly cartoonish rate, which will topple the ecosystem, mm -hmm. right, in the food chain. Mm -hmm. But what can I do? I'm just Dave Everyman. Right. So first of all, I was wondering when it was going to get crazy. And now that Dave Everyman has made an appearance, it's quite obvious it just happened. Mm -hmm. um, so it, that kind of ties into something you said earlier, Noel, that you were asking about was like climate changes. Mm -hmm. You know, the climate change 
actually doesn't necessarily count as an existential risk, oh. as bad as it would be. Now, it would for plenty of species that will be affected and wiped out. Like it, it's starting to look like coral. Um, climate right. change is going to be an existential threat to coral, um, or it is already. But to humans, and that's the thing, like we, I really want to focus this in. Like I'm talking about humans when I'm talking about existential risks in the entire series. It's all about things that can wipe out humanity. But existential risks exist for basically any living thing on earth. Um, and it turns out from what I saw, something kind of came up. Uh, is humans are actually an existential threat to just about everything else on Earth, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. And I think kind of part and parcel to us saving ourselves and saving the world, right, um, is at the same time simultaneously learning that um, kind of being at the top of the food chain, being Dave Everyman, who has the ability to think and act about this kind of stuff, that that makes us stewards for the rest of the uh, the planet. So even if climate change is not an existential threat to humans, which it seems like it's not, from taking on existential risks, from taking on existential threats, we should, in my opinion, kind of change our mentality, whether we like it or not, whether we're trying to or not, our, though our outlook would change. And I think that things like climate change would be mitigated. And, and this idea that Dave Everyman can't do anything to help, that sense of hopelessness that just kind of presses all of us, you know, down into our couches and, and into this funk, that kind of thing will, will go away. And the reason why it will go away, the reason why we can do anything, why Dave Everyman can do anything at all, um, is because it turns out no one at the top is doing anything. I talked to this philosopher named Toby Ord, who's one of the guys at the Future of Humanity Institute, and he has spoken to people in the highest echelons of government about this. One of the things they do is, is try to like warn people, including government, and say, hey, you're a policymaker. Um, they're not designing AI very well right now, and one of them could get out of control and take over the world. What do you think about that? What are you guys doing about that? Oh, well, you know, that's really kind of above my pay grade. I'm sure someone else is handling this. And Toby Orr was like, there's nobody above your pay grade. Like, it's up to you guys. If you're not doing anything, then that means no one's doing anything. Well, yeah, they're, they're stuck in like a cycle of elections, right? That's yeah, one of those things. Like. for sure. Yeah, that's that's a big part of the problem uh, as as far as like leadership goes is, is you know, not just with existential risk, but basically any large mm -hmm. project, any long-term thing. That's one of the things that climate change has run, run up into. Well, but it's politicized too. So it's like literally you're appealing to a particular base by choosing to say something's not really a problem or ignoring it. Sure. And that's almost like a, a power move right. to say this isn't really happening. Yeah. I know because I'm – in charge or I'm the smartest guy in the room right? and I ignore all these other people that are saying that it is. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's not – it's not – it's almost ignorance as a like a move kind of, you know? It's like, a, like it's, willful Yeah, ignorance. exactly. Yeah. And it's a disdain for expertise too. I think that's a really mm. popular thing right now and yeah, that kind of ties point. into that whole death cult thing that bothers me so much, you know? It's it's like you're a scientist. I don't care. You know, get get out of my face, egghead. I uh, I don't care about the climate. Um, that's just kind of a sentiment, uh, just a, a feeling that's not the entire zeitgeist, but it's definitely a part of the zeitgeist right now for sure. Well, it's almost like we don't have that much time anyway, so let's just get the most out of it that we can in the short time we have yeah. and not really worry about <laughs> the next – Part, you know what right. I mean? It's basically like the disco era took over the entire world. That's kind of what it feels oh, like. God. So we'll pause here and continue after a word from our sponsor. 
Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know. Taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Here's the question, or here's the turn for our show, because now we're talking about willful ignorance or anti-intellectualism, and mm-hmm. and all these other um, all these other flavors of governance in society, right? Or the problematic flavors. Is there, to your knowledge, any sort of cover-up or conspiratorial events surrounding mm-hmm. any of these existential risks? You knew you knew we were going to ask this. At some point. I was hoping. Would, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, I prematurely caught the, the yeah. where it got crazy with the Dave Everyman thing. Okay. But I uh, really appreciate you doubling down on Dave Everyman. Sure. Well, I think I quadrupled down on Dave Everyman. Um, it's, and pronounced, I, it's pronounced Everyman. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, the British pronunciation. Of the Manitoba Everyman. I say, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Now, I, now I know who, exactly who you're talking about. Um, um, so uh, I am quite sure that there have been. I don't think that there are in necessarily in fields of like AI. Mm-hmm. I know that the physics community is actually quite the opposite of that. They, uh, the people at CERN in particular have been working overtime while also simultaneously bending over backwards to show that the Large Hadron Collider is safe. But the the thing that made that episode, the physics episode, the most interesting to me is – um, 
a lot of the suggestions that it might not be safe are, are coming from physicists. It's not from just external, you know, guys who, who you know, declared their own patch of land in Nevada, a country <laughs> or anything like that. It's like actual physicists who work with particle colliders who work in theory. Um, and also, I didn't mean to denigrate a lot of your demographic <laughs> just now. Um, that that they they are the um, they are the people who are kind of raising the alarm on particle colliders, possibly creating microscopic black holes and that kind of thing. So, if I had to zero in on one group where there was, if not necessarily like conspiratorial cover-ups, at the very least, a lot of kind of brushing stuff under the rug, it would be the uh, biotech field for mm. sure. For sure. The level of recklessness and um, accident proneness, I guess, is a terrible way to put it, uh, that comes out of the biotech field. And certainly not the entire biotech field. There's plenty of people in the biotech field. And I would say the vast majority of the biotech field is very, very careful. But the problem with biotech is that even if you are careful, accidents still happen. And if you go back and you look at the statistics, um, not even statistics, like actual numbers – of, of like accidental releases of deadly, deadly pathogens from labs into the great wide world just over a very short time. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of them. And the, the thing that bothers me the most about biotech, when I researched this, I started to get like kind of mad. I'm like, this, this angers me that there's this field and no one, I, don't, I can't say no one, but very few people and certainly not enough people are paying attention to and regulating the biotech field. There are some really reckless experiments that are being carried out, and there are just a small fraction of labs in the world are required to report accidents even, let alone what they're doing or what kind of experiments they're carrying out. Accidents, mm. like meaning a deadly pathogen made it out in the skin of a lab worker who didn't realize it and it started to kind of spread or whatever. You don't – like if you were a, um, a, a private corporate – lab working in the biotech field and an accident happens, you don't have to tell anybody about it. You really? don't have to tell a single soul. You have to be funded by the National Institutes of Health in the United States or be affiliated with a lab in the United States funded by the National Institutes of Health to be required to report accidents. So of the like 650 accidental releases between I think 2004 and 2010 maybe – those were specifically accidents reported by labs that are funded by the NIH. That's it. Wow. There are so many more labs, BSL-3 and 4 labs. Those are the, the, most, um, uh, the, the, the most secure labs, but that means that they're also the ones who are working with the deadliest pathogens. There are so many of those in the world, and it's become such a, a, like a cool thing to be a corporation or like a, um, a university or uh, – to have a BSL-3 or 4 lab, no one has any idea how many there are in the world. Not a single person on planet Earth knows exactly how many BSL-3 and 4 labs there are on Earth right now. So where is the oversight coming from for those labs? I mean, basically nowhere. I think the USDA has some jurisdiction. Mm. Um, like OSHA or something? They don't have like worksite hazard, you know, inspections and things like that? So as far as um, – I'm sure that they do. As far as like OSHA goes, yeah, I think that that would, that would be extended to everything including those labs. But as far as like reporting it to 
uh, like the CDC or the NIH, there's no requirements unless you are NIH funded. That's terrifying. It and, is extremely yeah. terrifying. And we're just talking about the United States. Yeah. Right, exactly. So if you are, you know, working in a lab in Korea, Korea, South Korea, I'm sure, has um, like legislation or laws that say, you know, you have to do this or you have to follow these rules or whatever. But there's, there's, no, there's certainly no universal oversight agency. The UN has, is toothless. In this respect, in almost every respect, but certainly right. in this yeah. respect, right? Like toothless. Um, the The World Health Organization has like zero say in this. It's just, it's just the wild west. And unfortunately, um, there are microbiologists and plenty of them uh, in the field who are like, whoa, 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 what, what experiment did you just run? Like you just escalated um, the the uh, contagiousness of this deadly flu virus so that it can be passed more easily among mammals. Why did you just do that? Uh, we should have a two- or three- or four-year moratorium <laughs> on those kind of experiments. And, and that kind of thing does get um, uh, observed in the field, but it takes people in the field to do that, to raise the alarm, and they don't always do it, and it's, it's not necessarily having this sweeping effect. And then after they raise the alarm and study the problem, there's nobody stepping in and saying, yeah, don't do that anymore. Really quickly, I just want to stay on here because something that I kind of knew about but I learned a lot more about through listening to your podcast was gain-of-function research right. and what exactly that is. Can you just tell us about that and why it's so dangerous? Sure. So I talked to a few experts, like legitimate experts on this, and um, gain-of-function research is where you take a wild virus, a, a, I guess a natural virus, and you force a mutation in it so that it becomes deadlier or it becomes more contagious or it becomes less susceptible to treatments or drugs or something like that. And when, you've, when you force mutations in this a virus or a pathogen of any sort um, and it, it becomes deadlier or more contagious or less susceptible, it has gained function is what they call it. So gain of function research is basically taking evolution and speeding it up. And they'll do things like um, they'll force a bunch of mutations and kind of selectively breed a virus until it, they think it has the kind of um, the kind of like uh, maybe contagiousness they're looking for. And then they'll introduce it into like a ferret's nose and um, they'll take that and introduce it to another ferret's nose. And they'll just basically speed up the process of an infection, a pandemic among, you know, lab animals. And this was done with, uh, I think, H5N1 uh, in – a couple of different labs simultaneously, but independently. It's really weird. They took this really, really deadly virus and they basically taught it to be transferred from one ferret to another through like sneezes and coughs. You, it, what The saving grace, the thing that's kept us all alive as far as H5N1 goes, except for a handful of unlucky people, um, is that it's really tough to spread. It's really, really deadly. I think it has like a 70 or 80% mortality rate, but it's really hard to catch. Well, these guys were forcing gain of function to make that virus much easier to catch. And when this, when they started publishing these, these studies, um, the field just went nuts. They were not having it. They were very upset about this. They said this was very reckless. Why are you doing this in the first place? And then some people have even said, these experiments did not need to take place at all. You can actually study the same kind of stuff just by studying proteins. You don't have to have a wild or live, active 
deadly virus that you're, you're, you're creating this in, you can just study the proteins. So if you kind of step back, or I should say, if you dig a little deeper into it, you start to get the impression that there's a lot of ego that are driving experiments like this, just to kind of show that it can be done. And this, the field has a really uh, extensive history of that kind of like gun-slinging recklessness, like, look what I did. And the problem is, is when you create a virus like that, it's alive. It lives on Earth with us. And that means that it is your responsibility for the rest of time to either 100% eradicate it from Earth, or you have to keep up with it and make sure it doesn't get out. And if it does get out, well, that's a big problem because now you have an H5N1 virus that's extremely deadly and also extremely contagious. And that's the existential threat posed in the biotech field, that there are really risky experiments being carried out. And they also have a, uh, a, a long history of being accident prone as well. That's, that's the one that gets my, my blood raised the most. Yeah, that's I don't a, know if you could tell. It's yeah, scary. it's scary. <laughs> it's a te- I mean, it's a terrifying proposition because we hear in the news cycle, right? We hear about maybe once every year and a half a report of a virulent strain of something breaking out mm-hmm. in a specific part of the world. Mm-hmm. And the question is always, how far will it get this time? Right. Right. Uh, so are are you saying that there is a real and substantial possibility that some sort of um, aggressively modified virus or contagion really could just through the slip of someone's hand spread across the planet? I mean, it's it's not one of those things where one virus being experimented on in one lab poses a significant um, risk to humanity. Hmm. But it is a risk. Just that one virus in that one lab does pose a risk just by the very fact that it exists and there are such things as humans who are accident-prone experimenting on them, right? So um, the problem comes when you have many, many people running the same or similar experiments with the same or similar viruses all over the world in an unknown number of labs, mm-hmm. then that, that, one, that one remote risk starts to compound and get a little, a little more dangerous and a little more dicey. Um, I don't think that there's any virus right now that could conceivably wipe out 100% of humanity or so many humans that we, would, we could never possibly rebuild civilization 10,000 years down the road. I, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not in the biotech field. Mm. But from the outside looking in to the, the progression of the, the field over the last few decades in particular, um, it does seem like that's the direction it's going. It, uh, from my view, mm. just mine and I'm not an expert, but from my view, the sentiment, or the sentiment that I've kind of tapped into is – if you are a microbiologist of the kind of cowboy ilk, coming up with a contagious virus with 100% mortality would be like your crowning achievement, basically. And the whole premise of this is to study it so we can figure out how to treat them. And that, that is like a – that's a, a legitimate avenue of research. That's the main avenue of research for virology. That's the point, largely. But do we need to force – gain of function in viruses that don't exist like that in order to treat it. That's the question that I have. And, and 
to me, the answer is no. I, I think there are definitely other ways to do it, and we should be focusing our research and figuring out how to treat viruses that could conceivably get like that without creating them first. So, assuming that the world doesn't end, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All oh, my friends love it. I love that it's kids-safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know. Taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. I'd like to take a take a slight pivot here and ask a couple of biographical questions we probably should have asked in the beginning. This is this entire interview has made me very conscious of time as well. Oh, so good. I hope we have enough time to finish. Um, what one thing a lot of people would want to know is whether there was some specific moment in your life that inspired the end of the world series was it uh was it something related to biotech did you like get a nasty cold and the doctor <laughs> said boy uh this is weird josh um sit down You're right what happened have you been hanging out with ferrets lately <laughs> um i uh i actually was sick while i wrote the biotech episode oh, one no. uh yeah which just really drove everything home that much more um the thing that inspired me to do the series which uh, and also, I want to just take this time right now to, to to thank all three of you for your roles in helping me with the series. Like over time, all three of you had a hand in it, and I appreciate it big time. So thank you. Hats oh, off to all three of you as well. It's very kind of you, John. We, we were um, just 
excited to hear it. It's true. I was too. <laughs> really <laughs> glad it finally came out. Um, but the whole thing started, as you probably know, just from uh, this kind of intellectual curiosity about it. Like I, I ran across Nick Bostrom many years ago and read some of his papers. And um, I, I just found it fascinating. And I still find it fascinating. So the original point of the series was to say, hey, everybody, check this out. Isn't this the coolest thing you've ever heard in your life? And as I dug into it more and more and started to actually interview the people involved like Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord and other people at the Future of Humanity Institute, I realized, oh, wait, this isn't, this isn't just an intellectual pursuit these people are doing. Like, they're actually trying to warn the world. Like, this is real. Like, wait, 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 whoa. This is real. And the, the, I underwent a conversion, and then so too did the series because I was still working on the series at the time. And there was a huge uh, tone shift in the series. It went from straight, basically like a, a, a very dry book report to, okay, we need to do something, everybody. And the, like this kind of thread of we need to form a movement, we need to start doing something emerged in the series and, and took on, almost became like a, a character in the series or certainly a theme, a major theme. So it was originally intellectual interest that, that brought me to it. And then uh, I kind of uh, got struck by lightning on the way to finishing and, and it changed the tone big time. I'll tell you what made me want to put my phone down and join up the movement. And it was in one of the episodes where you talk about a certain three in a million chance. That oh, yeah. occurred in the 1940s. Isn't that fascinating? Can you tell us a little bit of that story? Yeah. So the f f what's widely seen as the first human-made existential risk that we've ever faced was the, the first detonation of uh, an atomic bomb at the Trinity mm -hmm. Test on mm -hmm. July 16, 1945 in Alamogordo, New Mexico, USA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't that they, they were saying, yes, this thing's going to be a deadly weapon. This is an existential risk. A lot of people make the case, and I kind of subscribe to it too, that the, the nuclear bomb has never been an existential threat to humanity. Like nuclear war, I should say, has never actually been – because we can't – we probably couldn't wipe all of humanity out. And again, that's the, the thing that separates existential risks from all other types of risk. Everything else we have a chance to rebuild. We have a chance to learn from that mistake. With existential risks, there's no second chances. There's no do-over. One thing, one thing goes wrong. That's it for everybody, right? Um, and the so, first, so yeah. So the nuclear bomb. Just to say this, mm -hmm. the nuclear bomb was not the existential risk. Again, was not officially that part wasn't the existential risk. Right. It was the detonation that conceivably posed an existential risk. I should say it was the first possible human-made existential risk. And the reason it was is they 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 were sitting around the dudes at the Manhattan Project, um, and I think it was Edward Teller. This is like the first time they all formally met. And Edward Teller was like, hey, has anybody thought, might we accidentally ignite the atmosphere with this thing? You know, we're about to dump a massive amount of energy into the atmosphere. It could set off a chain reaction, don't you think? And I've read differing accounts of it. Some people um, say that it was immediately shouted down and they all realized, no, it's fine, it's fine, whatever. And then somebody ended up telling Arthur Compton and Arthur Compton was like, oh, fiddlesticks, like we need to do something <laughs> about this. And he assigned Teller and a couple of other guys to go figure out whether it was possible. 
so depending on on what story you hear, either it was like this great, like, guys, we got to get to the bottom of this, or it was kind of like a side project. But either way, they definitely assigned Teller and, and a, a small group to go figure out, you know, mathematically if that was possible. And just to be clear, we're talking about the entire atmosphere, not just a section right. of atmosphere the Earth's entire atmosphere—a chain yeah. reaction, essentially. That right. was the—that was the fear that—that that if when they set off this first atomic bomb, because no one had ever set off an atomic bomb before, it wasn't even at the time known whether it was possible. There was still a chance that it was going to be an impossibility to create a um, a nuclear explosion. Uh, but they—they they were saying if we do do this, I mean, like if we started a chain reaction in the atmosphere, it could spread. And burn off the entire atmosphere on Earth and then life would just cease to exist in very short order. So they started to study this and they came back and said there is a almost no chance that this is going to happen. Even, even accounting for energy way beyond what we're going to be doing with the bomb, um, we're, we, we, it's, it's not going to happen. But these guys are physicists and physicists don't deal in, in certainty. They deal in probability. And so there was still that, that, that small, small chance that they could accidentally ignite the atmosphere with this. So later on, years later, um, they went ahead with the test. They decided that the, the possibility was small enough that it was worth taking the risk because at the time, the Nazis were still going strong and, and they were like, this is, this is worth, you know, the small chance that we're going to ignite the atmosphere is worth you know, taking over the Nazis with this bomb that we're going to produce from this test eventually. Um, but the the years later, the guy who was running the Manhattan Project at the time, his name was Arthur Compton. He he told the writer Pearl Buck about this story, and he said, "I drew a line in the sand. I said that if there was a three in a million chance of igniting the atmosphere, we wouldn't go through with the test." And so over the years, some people have been like, was it one in a million? Did he misspeak? Like, was there any chance whatsoever? But that was supposedly the way that we handled the first existential risk, which in a lot of ways is like, great, you know, hats off. Like they took it seriously. They studied it. Um, they, they did the math. They, they carried the, the one and all that stuff, right? Um, but then if you step back and look at it another way, that they – they decided for the rest of the people alive on Earth at the time that this three in a million chance was was worth it. Um, it was worth the risk. And I, I'm sure there's plenty of people still alive today and who would have been alive back then who would have said, no, no, it's actually not <laughs> worth that risk. Three in a million is actually not that remote of a chance. Like you have a one in a million chance of being struck by lightning if you live in North America. I can't remember if it's any given year or your lifetime, but a one in a million – this is a three times greater chance of being struck by lightning that they were going to ignite the atmosphere. And so if you kind of look at the probability compared to other probabilities, um, it, it suddenly made it seem like well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea to carry out the test anyway. And so I kind of used that in, I think, episode nine um, as, a, as kind of this, this teaching example. Like it gives us a model of how to approach existential risks, but it also shows us what not to do. And that's not to have just a small cadre of uh, people working in secret to decide for the rest of the world without any input um, whether something's worth the risk or not. And that's one of the reasons why we all need to be involved, why Dave Everyman from Manitoba needs to be involved, why you guys need to be involved, why I need to be involved. Because, again, 
There's no one at the top thinking about this stuff. And it's going to take a bottom-up process. But for us to do it correctly, for us not to just be like, mm, I don't think it's worth the risk, we all need to understand the science behind all this stuff. We need to be informed. So we need to, if we're going to decide together, it has to be a smart decision, you know? And we have to convert that death cult into the thinking cult to to take on existential risks because basically everybody needs to be on board. And at the very least, the people who aren't on board need to get out of the way and not work counter to the stuff that, that everyone else is trying to do. You know, I, I got to be honest. Uh, that was incredibly well said and <laughs> I kind of felt music swelling. I don't know if Paul's going to put it in. Uh, when we when we do this in post, uh, but it does it does lead us to uh, an, an some questions that naturally follow. Uh, one of which being, we, you're talking about becoming more educated, becoming more aware of a situation, becoming mm-hmm. less apathetic, realizing that there's no one truly in a room at the top, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but what what do those next steps look like? What what are the specific concrete things other than, of course? Checking out the show. <laughs> right. Thanks for that, too. Um, so uh, the first step that we have to take, those of us alive today, is to start talking about this kind of stuff. Like it, the more people talk about things, and I use the example of like the environmental movement. Like the environmental movement today has a lot left to do, a lot of work left to do. And who knows, maybe this kind of 12-year timeline that we've been given recently will will get people going a lot more seriously on climate change. But the fact is, there is an environmental movement. There didn't used to be. Just in the 60s, the late 60s even, there was basically no such thing as the environmental movement. Now, every, you know, eight-year-old can tell you tons of environmental facts, cares about the environment, knows what they can do to, to, make, the, to make the earth a better place, um, we need to do the same thing with existential risks. So step one is for everybody to make this an issue. When all of us start talking about things like this, the people who we elect start paying attention. It's like, oh, this is what these guys want. Okay, I'm on board. It's not like they're necessarily opposed to what we're doing by principle. It's just not enough of us are talking about this kind of thing or that kind of thing or whatever. So the more of us start start talking about this, the more we're going to be able to get movement on it. We also need to basically take a lot of the – scientific mental energy that we have available and a lot of the money that we put towards science and a lot of other stuff to divert to thinking about existential risks, identifying existential risks, identifying best practices. And then the next step is for those of us alive today to say, okay, what would you guys come up with? And then listen to them, not fight them, not say that sounds kind of hard. We can't do it because what they come back to us with will be a roadmap for surviving the next 100 to 200 years as a species, right? Uh, if, we can, if we can just kind of alter our brains just a little bit in those relatively small ways, we will lay the groundwork for generations to come to build on. But that's the key. Those of us alive today have to start now or else we're just going to hamstring the ones to come. And in that sense, it really kind of bears a strong resemblance to environmentalism as well. So it's basically environmentalism for the human species is what we need to do. Start that. Wow. So everyone listening here, uh, I would describe end of the world as if 
Black Mirror and Cosmos had a baby, and then that baby <laughs> made a podcast. And Babies that, can't make podcasts. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, they can. <laughs> but but if, uh, if that interests you, uh, as it did me, uh, go check it out right now. You can find The End of the World on uh, the iHeartRadio app. Mm-hmm. Ooh, is that the right way to say it? I've never done this before. <laughs> that, do you, somebody uh, want to? Do you want to do it, Josh? You, you say where it is. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, everywhere you listen to podcasts. And not to mention, it's all there, so you can binge yes. the whole thing. The it's whole, all there for yep. your listening pleasure. So all ten episodes. Yeah. yeah. And, and hats off to Paul too. You know, he was the supervising producer on it and mm-hmm. did a top notch job. That's why they call him Mission Control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, also. Uh, Tell us how you feel after checking out the show. Tell us what really piqued your interest. Tell us uh, if you have responses. You can you can write to us. You can write to Into the World on let's see Instagram, Twitter, all the hits, all the internet uh, hits. Right? Uh, mostly, I'm on. There's a there's a hashtag. Yeah. Hashtag. You got to make the two symbol, the two finger symbol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hashtag EOTW Josh Clark is where you'll find that all over social. Mm-hmm. And then I'm at Josh Um Clark. On like Instagram and Twitter and in f- Facebook, um, and then there's like some EOTW Josh Clark stuff too. And tell us, uh, tell us how you keep your optimism after you listen to the show. I don't want to spoil it too much because uh, you should go check it out. Thanks. So go ahead and find us again. We are conspiracy stuff on most socials or conspiracy stuff show on Instagram. It just just tell us. What you think? This is this kind of stuff keeps me up at night, honestly. And I don't know how you got through creating all of this content, Josh. Because I mean, just listening to it and and uh, absorbing it as a listener g- gives you a certain amount of dread and hope. And it's almost this simultaneous, like scared, happy feeling. It's very strange. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's very strange. Mm-hmm. And you've just been immersed in it, and you're still here, and you look you look to be fine. Oh, it's all show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.